Hi, there, all you boys and girls out there in podcast land. We have a lot to cover in today's episode, so I'm going to get started as quickly as possible just to cover some of the opening business. Uh, first of all, uh, I should go without warning that you can't have a podcast discussion about Tarantino without using clips that are going to have some offensive language, just the nature of the beast. The way I figure it is, this is a grown-up show talking about grown-up topics, and you know, when you talk about an artist as provocative as Tarantino, I feel like you do the discussion a disservice if you water down or sterilize the power of his prose, so be forewarned. Second, you support this show when you support our sponsors. We have two great sponsors, songfreedom.com. Go to songfreedom.com slash radio, and you can get a nice surprise. Find yourself a song that can kick your productions up to the next notch. They have everything from indie artists to mainstream, uh, great selection. Go to songfreedom.com slash radio. Other supporter is Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. This is the process that these guys have used to go from shooting weddings to shooting the Super Bowl and winning five Emmys. They have a new class called How to Conduct Remarkable Interviews. And you can hear later on in the show about a little surprise they have for you um, for the listeners of the show. So go to learnstory.org to learn more about Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. All right, that's it. Let's get to business. We got a lot of stuff to cover. On with the show. Take one, take ten, marker. And action. Chapter one, the end. I'm ready, let's do it, right now, right here. Come on. All right. Same as last time, remember? Your crowd control, I handle employees. When it comes to the craft of filmmaking, there's one name that most embodies the essence of being a cinematic auteur. That name is Tarantino. Everybody be cool, this is a robbery! Any of you fucking pricks, move! And I'll execute every motherfucking last one of you! Like, I was at a coffee shop last week, and at the tip jars they had Kubrick and Tarantino as the two options. And, and the tip, like two different tip jars, and yeah, you put it to, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you had to choose, you know, which chip jar to put your tip in. <laughs> and I was sitting outside, and this kind of exuberant, loud man comes out and goes, "Oh my God, did you see those tip jars? Like, thank God, more people put the tips in Kubrick. I mean, Tarantino, please, what a hack!" When Reservoir Dogs came out, I don't think anyone was saying, "I wonder what Tarantino's style is." Like. Mm-hmm. That movie yeah. was so yeah. signature that... Sure, but I think the movie was signature, but I don't think that determined the style. Quentin Tarantino, I think, off the top, his movies are so distinctive. I think that you cannot go to a Tarantino film and not feel viscerally. When you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, he does not care whether or not you... you know He doesn't care if you like it or not. Uh, but he has to understand the rules of the gangster movie uh, in order for you to have the expectation, oh, I know how this is going to go. And then you're like, and then Tarantino goes, I don't know, I don't think you do. I don't think you know where I'm going with this. And uh, if it was just a straight-up, hard-nosed gangster movie, it, it would not be Pulp Fiction. He's the Kanye West of filmmaking. <laughs> With all due respect to his good friend Robert Rodriguez, Quentin Tarantino is the veritable patron saint of rebel filmmakers. Love him or hate him, you cannot and will not ignore him. And what's so remarkable about Tarantino as a filmmaker is that he's only directed eight feature films. Eight! And his eighth only just recently came out. How is it that someone with such a relatively small directorial filmography can have made such a powerful and indelible impact on the cinematic landscape? The answer is found in one word. Style. But you thought I was going to say story, didn't you? Well, he's a great storyteller too, but it's his style that really, more than anything else, sets him apart from other filmmakers. Today on the show, we look at the filmmaker's filmmaker. We talk to other filmmakers and cinephiles about his storytelling, his shooting, and his style. And we see what we can glean in the pursuit of our own signature style. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School. A filmmaker's journey.
Chapter Two: The Right Stuff. Tarantino is one of those filmmakers whose work is so distinctive that within seconds of hearing his dialogue, you know you're watching a Tarantino film. This watch was on your daddy's wrist when he was shot down on Hanoi. He was captured, put in a Vietnamese prison camp. He knew that if the gooks ever saw the watch, it'd be confiscated, taken away. The way your dad looked at it, this watch was your birthright. You'd be damned if any slope's gonna put the greasy yellow hands on his boy's birthright. So he hid it. In one place, he knew he could hide something: his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. Give me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then, after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now. Little man, I give the watch to you. Fellas, I'm ready to get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man. You know, moving, doing it. You know. I think that's one of the hallmarks of his style, um, the dialogue that he writes. Just off the top of your head, can you think of a Quentin Tarantino movie whose dialogue you like the most? I will tell you this story. I somehow, I don't remember how, but I was interning at a management company. That's the voice of Clark Wolf, an actress and film entertainment YouTube channel host, frequently seen on Collider Movie Talk. And somehow, a, a script for Inglorious Bastards. I don't know why I had it or could see it. That doesn't sound right because he's so protective of that. But um, but I remember reading the opening scene and kind of being like, "Oh, this is boring." Um, and then I remember seeing it and being riveted. If a rat were to walk in here right now as I'm talking, would you greet it with a source of your delicious milk? Probably not. I didn't think so. You don't like them. You don't really know why you don't like them. All you know is you find them repulsive. Consequently, a German soldier conducts a search of a house suspected of hiding Jews. Where does the hawk look? He looks in the barn. He looks in the attic. He looks in the cellar. He looks everywhere he would hide. But there's so many places it wouldn't have occurred to a hawk to hide. However, the reason the Führer's brought me off my Alps in Austria and placed me in French cow country today is because it does occur to me. Because I'm aware of what tremendous feats human beings are capable of once they abandon dignity. I learned a really valuable lesson. Like you know, I, I think that you know, yes, a lot of it needs to live on the page. But when you're dealing with, you know, and I would use the word auteur for for Tarantino. When you're dealing with someone like that, you know, he clearly has the vision in his head, and you can see, you know, through various um, various outlets, you know, he reads his scripts out loud, you know, as he's writing them to Robert Rodriguez or two friends that he trusts, and you know, he's acting it out, <laughs> and it's just kind of amazing. Amazing how he sees it so very clearly. I see the movie in my mind. Before I make the movie, I've watched the movie. I've got a genuine vision. I have a vision for the film, and I'm doing that vision. That's how I see it. I don't even think that I do anything that special. It's just literally the way I see, how you see it. As equally unforgettable and quotable as his dialogue are the characters he creates. And there's probably no Tarantino character as revered as Jules the Hitman, played by longtime Tarantino collaborator Samuel L. Jackson. And without a doubt, probably the most famous line of dialogue uttered out of the mouth of Jules was his biblical Angel of Death prologue to him popping a cap in your ass. Ezekiel 25:17. The path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. Blessed is he who in the name of charity and goodwill shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness, for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children. 
and I will strike down upon thee with great vengeance and furious anger those who attempt to poison and destroy my brothers. And you will know my name is the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon thee. But here's the thing. Have you ever looked up Ezekiel 25:17? My guess is that most of you probably haven't. That speech isn't even close to what Ezekiel 25:17 actually says. Well, it's close. But here's what it actually says. I will carry out great vengeance on them and punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. So like I said, the Tarantino dialogue is close, but most of it is actually interpreted from other parts of the Bible. Here's what the website truthbygrace.org surmised. The portion of the monologue about the tyranny of evil men is inspired by Ezekiel 34. The portion about the valley of darkness refers to King David's words in Psalm 23, and the portion about being one's brother's keeper refers to the first human death, occurring in Genesis 4, in which Cain, after murdering his brother Abel, asked the Lord, am I my brother's keeper? So Tarantino basically did with that verse what he does with his movies. He takes bits and pieces from other verses, just like he takes bits and pieces from other movies, then puts his own spin on it. In fact, I think that line, as written by Tarantino, is sort of a microcosm of Tarantino as a filmmaker overall. Beyond the borrowing of bits and pieces, it's bold, it's brash, it's borrowed, but it's different. Tarantino basically takes a line from a book anyone can look up, totally changes it, claims it for his own, and just doesn't care that it's different. And that is the kind of filmmaker Tarantino is. Bold, brash, and just doesn't give a you-know-what. Chapter 3, DJQ. K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s Weekend just keeps on coming with this little ditty. Tarantino, his style is to put together very well a lot of styles. <laughs> That's Salvatore Dalia, a New York City-based filmmaker by way of Italy, who's the director and creative mind behind Adorama's Through the Lens YouTube series highlighting top Instagram photographers. Salvatore, or Sal for short, had a very interesting take on Tarantino's use of music in his films. Like, you know, from a technical point of view, you can say, oh, but he doesn't have a style. You just copy a bunch of, like, you know, different styles from other directors. But that's a style, you know? He probably is a huge cinema lover. And he just, his technique is to put together a lot of different techniques. And that's what makes his style. So, and he became very good at it. He's, he's the best at it, actually. Yeah. Um, is the great it's the greatest like dj of movies <laughs> i like that it just yeah you know like you know, if you watch like kill bill it's like watching like you know 15 different you know directors you know directing the same movie but it's just one that's his style uh or the choice of music you know how the the genres change for every scene uh that's basically like a yeah being a dj you know, one of the things I do love about what he does is is he uses music in such a way that uh, where it may or may not make sense on the surface. Yeah. But then when you really break it down, you're like, oh, this is the perfect song. Here's Clark Wolf again. He's telling a story so completely. Um, that, I think, is the biggest the biggest mark of a Tarantino film. Yes, it is a, an amalgamation of, of many different genres, types of films, work that's come before. However, it's a story that is being told not only through the actors, not only through the writing, not only through the direction, not only through post, not only through music, not only through shot composition. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just yeah. so thoroughly... Um, it's so thorough, such thorough storytelling. Your comment about him and his use of music, I think, is like so dead on. I mean, I can't think of another filmmaker who uses music as effectively as he does. Um, and, and, and maybe if I thought about it, I could. But like, there are certain there are certain songs now. Like when I hear them, I can't help but think about Tarantino. I mean, I think if I hear like "Stuck in the Middle," yes, absolutely. Well, I don't... 
The air scene from yeah. Reservoir Dogs. We hear Mezzaloo, I'm thinking Pulp Fiction. So <laughs> the way he combines it with, I think, visuals that are so striking, like when you hear the song, I think that's part of it. Um, where you just, yeah, just the way he weaves it in, and sometimes the vis- sometimes the music is eerily. Um, doesn't seem to really jive with what you're with what you're seeing. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, basically, I think what you're getting at is the idea that when he's using a song, they, like there's no such thing as in the background with Quentin Tarantino, <laughs> right? Like th- whatever it is is front and center. You are meant to see it. it. Is a highly controlled environment. It's not a casual. Oh well, I like this song and I have the rights to it. Okay, let's throw it in there. No. We are choreographing everything with for with the ear scene to that song. Mm-hmm. The way K Billy sounds in the 70s, the intro plays, we're giving that its time. And then, you know, Michael Madsen's gonna dance and he's gonna do things and it's gonna cut at the exact right times. Like this is intentional. Um, and I think that's why things like that are iconic. Tarantino's quoted as saying. To me, movies and music go hand in hand. When I'm writing a script, one of the first things I do is find the music I'm going to play for the opening sequence. I think that statement definitely bears true when you watch Tarantino films. Music in Tarantino's films are in many ways like their own character. What's more fascinating is that most of his films aren't scored. In fact, his eighth and most recent film, The Hateful Eight, was the first film of his that has a full original score. Most of the time he's using pre-existing music or scores from classic or obscure films. Side note, he hired the legendary Italian composer Ennio Morricone to score The Hateful Eight, and believe it or not, it's Morricone's first Oscar win. Again, that's another one of those Oscar head scratchers. Morricone is easily one of the top five, maybe even top three iconic composers in all of cinema. And only now he's got an Oscar? Anyway, back to the topic at hand. Tarantino's use of music illustrates the importance of picking just the right song or set of songs for your project. I spoke with filmmaker Philip Bloom about how he uses music. Tell me how you've used um, music in, in, your, in, your, in your videos. Um, like, how seriously do you take it in, oh, yeah. in, in picking well, music for your work? I would say we take it pretty darn seriously. I'm, I'm a musician. Uh, oh, I'm not a okay. musician. I'm a I'm a uh, photographer first, but uh, and Eileen is a musician. She's much better than I am. In case you're wondering why his accent sounds a bit off, it's because this is not the internationally renowned British DP Philip Bloom, spelled B L O O M. This is the award-winning wedding and portrait photographer Philip Bloom, spelled B L U M E, from Athens, Georgia, USA. Philip and his wife, Eileen, travel around the country teaching other photographers. I've run into him, and, and we've kind of joked about that. Uh, he jokingly threatened to, to sue me over my name, and <laughs> but, <laughs> but we're, I'm, de- I'm definitely aware of Philip Bloom. He's fantastic. I, I, yeah. I love his work, obviously. And they're diehard Song Freedom users. So I took some time to ask him about his thoughts on music and how seriously they take it when creating their films. Music can help you organize your thoughts, you know, just listening to classical music different forms. The, um, it's, it has this imp- amazing emotional impact as well. Uh, and that's something that even before video came along into our business, we were using uh, music from Song Freedom syn- synchronized with slideshows, uh, showing our photography to clients um, and using that in sales sessions to, to really help that initial emotional impact to be really, really strong. Uh, from sales and business perspective, um, we humans are emotional buyers, so we actually make purchasing decisions with the side of our brain um, that's responsible for emotion, not for logic. Uh, and some people would like to think that they're not emotional buyers, but actually all of our brains work that way. So that was hugely helpful. Uh, we definitely noticed uh, a, a measurable impact from that. Um, and artwork sales make up a huge part of our business, which is what we teach um, to a lot of photographers around the country. So. So that was helpful. And then, of course, when we got to the video world, it just became a lot more fun for me because I got to start mixing and cutting songs and, you know, synchronizing with the video. And it becomes it becomes a part of 
the vid uh, video, um, probably the biggest part. I think, you know, the statistic that you hear is um, uh, audio is 90% of video. And, uh, you know, just to pull, a, to pull a figure out of thin air there, but it kind of describes how much audio and, and music means to a project. It really gives it that life. That's a, a valuable lesson to learn, the importance of audio, because, and I say this all the time, uh, you can fix bad video, but it's almost impossible to fix bad audio, especially if it's really bad. Um, yeah. That, I mean, even if you have video that's totally unusable, if the audio is good, there's always creative ways around yeah, it. It's, it is amazing how that hides um, yeah, imperfections. Uh, visually, but yeah, and you and the the reverse is true as well. You can be watching fantastically created video, uh, you know, top quality, and and then if there's a little blip in the audio or um, you know something doesn't sync up, it takes you completely out of the experience. And that's to me as an artist, that's what I think about when I'm whether I'm creating an image or or a video um, compilation of of audio and video uh, is experience. It's not. It's ultimately not about the technical side of things. I think that we, we can get caught up in the gearheads and what equipment's what's newest. It all comes down to the, the ultimate finished experience. Um, and that's, that's what I've, I've, I think I've learned and I've loved um, you know, creating Lost Boys of Paradise, our documentary film. Um, just having access, going into Song Freedom and having access to cinematic, you know, to, to symphonies, you know, um, as if I had someone there to, to write uh, the music for my film um, and then also popular music uh, and, and bringing that into our the business side of our studio um, that connects with our clients. So it's just, it's just this huge wealth of, of stuff there that I love using. We'll hear from Bloom again in our next Filmmaker's Journey episode of the show. In the meantime, check out their feature-length documentary Lost Boys of Paradise about rescuing young boys from the poverty and gang life of Guatemala at lostboysofparadise.com and if you're looking to find some amazing cinematic symphonies for your next project go to songfreedom.com radio to unlock a standard gold level license worth $30 we thank Song Freedom for their support we now return to our regularly scheduled program chapter 4 Something old, something new, something borrowed. He's the Kanye West of filmmaking. <laughs> uh -huh. Blood diamonds on the king's crown. Gold hanging from the chandelier. Platinum dripping from the flows, yeah. That's the voice of hip-hop music video director Isaac Dietz. Isaac has become somewhat of a show regular, primarily because of his rich knowledge of cinema and alter filmmakers. He thinks he's like flawless. He takes a lot of his stuff from older artists. Both of them do that. And then you have this expectation because of, you know, what you're saying, but also because you're a respected filmmaker or musician. Like Kanye d did some great stuff. These haters like roaches just messing the size. And that's why we're kind of tolerating him, is because it's like, dude, you're really, you're right, you're really good, but like this, we're waiting for you to fall. Right. And uh, maybe there's a little bit of me in there, like waiting for Tarantino to fall, and I saw him like stumble, mm -hmm. not necessarily fall, and that's why I jump on him, and maybe that's a human thing that I need to deal with myself and figure out. You already know why I am here. I'm about that. You know why I'm about that. There's much ado made about the fact that Tarantino borrows so much of his work from other films and filmmakers, albeit many from a bygone era, or from an aspect of the industry unknown to most except for the most knowledgeable and versed cinephiles. He studied so much Asian culture and Japanese film uh, style, and I think that that comes through. That's the voice of Lydia Hurlbut. Lydia is the wife of AC cinematographer Shane Hurlbut. She's the CEO of Hurlbut Visuals, Shane's production company, plus a source of in-depth online education for filmmakers. And yet he, he looks at things, or the spaghetti westerns, right? He looks at 
and, and really deeply researches things and then continues to make it his own. So it's not like a copycatting. It is a, I've deeply studied this and I'm going to use elements to create my own story. Naturally, you wouldn't understand what a gentleman's word is his bond. We have these filmmakers who are you know, intentionally borrowing, like Tarantino. That's the voice of another recurring radio film school expert, award-winning filmmaker and USC film school grad, Kevin Shahinian. Kevin is world-renowned for creating wedding films that have feature film-level production quality. He has some very interesting and very poignant points to make about Tarantino as a filmmaker. You know, it's obvious that he's, he's borrowing it. In a lot of films, it's almost like shot for shot where he's borrowing. But somehow he's, he's, he's been able to, pick, like you said, his like own spin on it. And I'm not, and like, I don't know it. Like, do you think it's because, because uh, a lot of the films that he borrows from are obscure, like obscure Asian films or spaghetti westerns that 99% of the, uh, of the audience out there would not get. So as far as they know, uh, it's original, you know what I'm saying? And only those, you know, cinephiles who truly have an understanding of, you know, film history will be able to see, uh, some of these, you know, these homages, if you will, to these old films. So is, is, I guess, so I guess my question is, do you think Tarantino actually has put a personal spin on it to take these homages that he's borrowed and make it his own? Or do you think it's just that so many people who see his films really don't know the original source material? So for to them, it seems original. I'd say it's certainly a bit of both. Um, definitely, yeah, definitely very obscure. Um, his references are, you know, 70s, 60s, 50s, um, and, and like B-movies and like just, just movies that are totally not mainstream stuff. Um, but I do, think he, I do think he has a great style on top of that. Like, I don't know if you have any concrete examples. Like, is there a film of his that you've seen where you, where you have an example of like his take on it? Like, okay, he's obviously borrowing from, you know, so-and-so here, you know, but the take on it he did or the twist that he did was this. Is that, does anything come into mind? I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of early Tarantino. Um, I, I, my, my sort of, my love of filmmakers is sort of twofold. One, it's like the appreciation of the talent there, like a Wes Anderson, Tarantino, those, those guys. Um, and then as, a, as an audience member, as just a regular layperson, am I engaged? Do I, do I love the storytelling? And I would say Tarantino kind of falls in that first category. I appreciate his style and like, I appreciate the talent and time that he's put into his filmmaking, developing that style. But a lot of his, a lot of his newer stuff, um, I have not been as responsive to as compared to like his like Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction. Um, Jackie Brown. Um, and I would say in those early films, I see a bit of Scorsese in there. I don't think that can be argued. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's the, this is a story and spectacle. So there's the hardened criminal, which Scorsese just loves criminal characters. Um, and Scorsese loves moving the camera like crazy. Um, but Scorsese just does it so well. Um, that it's often invisible and the amazing voiceovers he brings Scorsese I'm talking about um, and just kind of seeing that in, in bits and pieces in Tarantino's early films um, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know if you know Tarantino's ever admitted to being influenced by Scorsese but that's just my observation I think it's it's incredible because you know he he, he won't um, you know he'll he'll be the first to admit that admit that. That's David Griffin. David is another entertainment writer and journalist. He's a co-host on the movie review YouTube show Think Hero, and he's a regular co-host on Collider's weekly TV review show Collider TV Talk. And yeah, I know he uses, there's a certain shot that Scorsese does. He loves Scorsese. There's a certain shot that he does. I forgot what it's called. I'm not a, of course a filmmaker, but uh, I know that he's borrowed before and. Uh, 
I, but he, the weird thing is, like you said, Ron, he borrows all these things, but it doesn't feel because I think most of America and the world, you know, I put myself in the same category. Even as a critic, we don't have the same level of film knowledge that he does because he's such a student. It's almost like Peyton Manning, you know, when you watch him after he, you know, goes off the field. He's, you know, right. sitting down on the bench looking at plays like no other quarterback does that. He, Peyton Manning is a student of the, uh, of the game and I think Tarantino is a student of film uh, and it, just like any great artist. And he's he does it and he gives you this, this um I guess, you know, reused material or stuff that's been used before, but it looks new. It looks fresh. It looks different. And we don't really call him a copycat as much, even though he is, to some degree, it still feels original because no other director can do that style. Uh, it seems like, oh, it's easy. He's just using other people's stuff. It's like, well, how come other directors don't do that? You know, or at least how come they don't do it as well as he does? And uh, I don't have a problem with that. People say there are new, no new ideas, which I think is is a kind of false question. That's Zach Lepofsky. Zach was a finalist in the short-lived Steven Spielberg-produced filmmaker reality TV show On the Lot. Zach also recently directed the legendary pictures film Dead Rising Watchtower. He's also a technology entrepreneur as he's the creator of the number one shotlist app Shotlister, as well as the new app Script Speaker. Zach is another student of film who brings an insightful, informed, and nuanced take on discussions like these. All, everything that's labeled as new is two previously unconnected ideas that are now connected. When found footage started, that was connecting camcorder-looking stuff with horror movies, you know what I mean? And that was had never been done before and was called new, but it was two previous ideas, camcorder news-looking stuff with horror films. They just had never been connected. And then, you know, Chronicle comes out, which is taking camcorder, like found footage, which at that point had now been old hat, but combining it with an action movie that had never, that had never been done before, you know, like, and so that is now new. And so you as a person are going to be inspired by a whole range of totally different things, completely unique to you, but how you connect them and what comes out of that will be, will be you and kind of be unique to you. Chapter 5, The Table Scene. A recurring motif in Tarantino films is the iconic table scene. We already heard the beginning of Pulp Fiction with Honey Bunny and Pumpkin, played by Amanda Plummer and Tim Roth. Other iconic scenes from Pulp Fiction I'd include would be the end of that movie where Jules has his moment of clarity and the, and the Mexican standoff that he has with Honey Bunny and Pumpkin. We heard part of the opening from Inglorious Bastards with Christoph Waltz's Hans Landa. Another Mexican standoff table scene in that movie is the bar scene with Michael Fassbender. There's, of course, the classic and hilarious opening to his inaugural feature, Reservoir Dogs. But I think one of the most powerful and provocative table scenes that Tarantino has ever put to the silver screen is this scene from Django Unchained. But if I took this hammer here and I bashed in your skull with it, you would have the same three dimples in the same place. Is old Ben. Hey! Lay your palms flat on that tabletop. If you lift those palms off that turtle shell tabletop, Mr. Pooch is gonna let loose with both barrels that start off. There have been a lot of lies set around this dinner table here tonight, but that you can't believe. You got a gun, Polity? Or will you use mine? I'm a straight shooter, never lose a gun, so where's the scope to learn how to be cool hands in a house? Tarantino loves tables. And speaking of Mexican standoffs, he loves those too. He loves Mexican standoffs at tables, apparently. It's something that repeats in his work. Which is a great segue to this episode's table scene. I think style occurs when something repeats from more than one video. These are the residents of Thunderdome, a faith-based artist-in-residence program for filmmakers to come, work on personal projects, study filmmaking, and of all things, do Bible study together. Isaac Dietz created the program. While in Atlanta last summer, I gathered about four or five of them to talk about filmmaking and developing a signature style. And inevitably, the subject of Tarantino comes up. 
Who you're hearing now is Jonathan Gabriel. What's repeating in Tarantino's videos? And that is his style. What are you bringing to the table every time? Or what is reoccurring? And I think that it's hard to determine someone's style based on one video. Once you watch one thing, the second video, you start to see what returns, what happens. And mm. I think that... It's hard to tell style with only one video. I think so if my mom one. only filmed one thing, you wouldn't be able to, she doesn't have a style? Or? It would be hard to he tell. He's not saying she doesn't have a style. He's just saying it would be hard You're to determine what that style okay. is. Okay. So there's, there's, there, yeah, it's, it is hard to tell somebody's style on, based on one video. One mm-hmm. counter I would put to what you're saying, Jonathan, is when Reservoir Dogs came out, I don't think anyone was saying, I wonder what Tarantino's style is. Like, mm-hmm. that movie yeah. was so yeah. signature that... Sure, but I think the movie was signature, but I don't think that determines the style. I-, I feel like a lot of times we're talking about style in the sense of, like, like a trunk opening or, like, a certain color that's used or whatever. I think style is more of, like, what is this person like in... in the So, like, Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones. They have two distinct styles and i think that um spike jones loves reactions mm. lack of reactions and uh, like human stuff so it doesn't matter about trunks it doesn't matter about sound it doesn't matter about color he could have black and white or color he could do all his films uh, black and white and still do a color film and it'd still be his style because mm. style isn't about the brush stroke of the the necessarily the whether or not it's in color or whether or not it's the you know opening from a trunk I think style is like a deeper thing of like, what is this person like? And, and going with the personality thing of like um, Spike Jones loves reactions, lack of reactions. What is the surrounding things doing? So when he does a comedy, a car blows up and people aren't reacting. A guy's running on fire and people aren't reacting. Um, or, you know, a mailbox opens up and everyone's reacting by dancing with it. That's a style. It's It's a human... It's how he sees the world around him. I think that's what style is in a different way. Where Tarantino is very... He could, I think Tarantino could use scene for scene, beat for beat, like other films, but his style would be in there mm-hmm. in the sense of like... Tension. Yeah, tension or exaggerated. He's exaggerated. So it's not necessarily like a trunk, but it's exaggerated of everything he does. Of like, So if somebody gets shot in a Tarantino movie, it's going to be bloody like crazy. Mm-hmm. If it's going to be in color, it's going to be saturated. If it's going to be black and white, it's going to be really black and white. And it, like, So even the opening scene in Kill Bill is black and white, but it's really black and white like more so than others like like he's just his i would say his style is exaggerated where it's even his swearing and his and his uh dialogue and and everything's way over the top so and that's why he pulls from so when he pulls from other things it's fitting to his style i kind of think wonder if like if his style isn't bringing to the masses something that the masses have never seen so, like, hmm. his knowledge, his film knowledge in, is so deep and vast and wide that the average Joe, he doesn't need that, um, <laughs> that the average Joe doesn't, like, the average Joe doesn't recognize Sonny Chiba films or doesn't recognize sure. all the films he's paying homage to, even the average filmmaker who studies. I mean, I, I, mean, <clears throat> I wouldn't call myself a film historian or anything, but when I saw that Everything is a Remix clip and saw side by side all the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, up to that point, up to the first time I saw that um, Everything is Remix, I like I knew Tarantino kind of borrowed from other films, but I didn't know how, to what extent it was until I saw these side by side, all these different scenes, yeah. right? Kill Bill raises filmic sampling to new heights of sophistication. The killer nurse scene in particular is almost entirely a recombination of elements from existing films. The basic action is the same as this scene from Black Sunday, where a woman disguised as a nurse attempts to murder a patient with a syringe of red fluid. Daryl Hannah's eye patch is a nod to the lead character in They Call Her One Eye, and the tune she's whistling is taken from the 1968 thriller Twisted Nerve. Capping it off, the split screen effect is modeled on techniques. He recognized something in those films films that didn't have a mass appeal. Or maybe they were only seen in China or whatnot. Mm -hmm. And and then he created something 
in English, gave it to America, and they saw it, and then for the first time, they saw something that he knew about from all his years. As we're in the final stretch of this episode, I want to take a brief moment to recognize another company that helps keep this podcast going. Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. Both of our sponsors are particularly apropos for discussion of Tarantino. In addition to music, the ability to tell compelling, engaging stories is a hallmark of any Tarantino film. Not just the way he tells the story of the film you're watching, but even the actual stories that his characters tell in his films. We all know the importance of story in any film. But I often tease that story is the new cinematic. That buzzword that everyone from filmmakers to fashion designers use to sell their work. That being said, however, story is important. And the folks at Muse are experts at it. And one of the ways they're able to tell such amazing true life stories are the interviews they conduct. Have you ever worked with somebody in your film, someone you're interviewing, whether in a pre-interview or a B-roll scene or a formal interview, and you leave feeling utterly disappointed? Like you didn't really capture the sound bite that you wanted or that captured the essence that you wanted. Or the interviewee sounded like a puppet or an automaton. It happens to all of us. So often we blame the people in our films for not being passionate enough, succinct enough, or just not giving us what we need. Muse Storytelling calls it the it's not me, it's you syndrome. It occurs when we blame our characters, the people we're interviewing, rather than take responsibility as the storyteller. Well, apparently they've developed a cure for the it's not me, it's you syndrome. Keep listening, because at the end of the show, they have a great offer that will allow you to get something deeper out of your interviewees. Stay tuned. Chapter 6. It's all a joke. What is this? That's an amusing anecdote about a drug deal. What? Something funny that happened to you while you're doing a fucking job, man. Damn. I gotta memorize all this? There's over four fucking pages Look, of this man, shit. Here. Just think about it like it's a, a joke, all right? You memorize what's important, the rest you make your own, all right? You can tell a joke, can't you? Nope. Well, pretend you're Don Rickles or some fucking body and tell a joke, all right? That clip from Tarantino's first feature, Reservoir Dogs, provides another opportunity to evaluate a meta-element in Tarantino's dialogue. The idea of taking something that exists and making it yours. But this idea of telling a joke has another meta connection to Tarantino. And that's where, again, you go back to joke telling. The mechanics of joke telling are such a simple uh, way to, to see the storytelling. That show regular Brandon McCormick, director and co-founder of Whitestone Motion Pictures. In many ways, Brandon is himself the kind of auteur filmmaker whose work is reminiscent of the auteurs he admires, but done in his own unique spin. Here, he's talking about how joke-telling is a metaphor for storytelling, and how Tarantino is a master, quote-unquote, comedian. Because you set up an expectation, and then you subvert it with a different thing, and that experience of, oh, I thought you were going to say this, but then you actually said this, and it's a different connection, produces laughter, it produces fear, it produces all kinds of feelings. And that's our, that's the, you know, we hate the movies where you go, oh, I figured it out in the second act. And it just, it was exactly what I expected. Yeah. Um, it could be great. It could be really well done. But mm -hmm. if it's like, oh, okay, well, that happened the way I thought. Exactly. It basically you're saying, you know, the joke didn't, it's not funny because you didn't, you didn't surprise me. You didn't. And so that means we have to have an understanding of the tropes. Uh, and then it's, you got to set them up and then you got to subvert them. I think Tarantino does this great in Pulp Fiction. Uh, so Jules and Vince driving down, they're gangsters, right? And they're right. just like. Now, the, but so the cliche is they're gangsters going to kill somebody, but they're talking about cheeseburgers, right? Okay, so that's a that's a dissonance. That's just like subverting in expectations. At some point, uh, you know, someone says I can't remember who it was, but you know, we're just gangsters doing gangster shit, and that's just a that is just I think Tarantino winking to the audience, going, yeah, okay, you know, we know this is the cliche, and then we're gonna get them in their underwear getting hosed down in the backyard. Uh, because that's funny. You mm -hmm. don't expect to see gangsters pulling brain matter out of a car because they accidentally shot a guy. Right. Um, so, but he sets up, here's the, this is a gangster movie, but it's not like the one you've seen. Uh, but he has to understand the rules of the gangster movie uh, in order for you to have the expectation, oh, I know how this is going to go. And then you're like, and then Tarantino goes, I don't know, I don't think you do. I don't think you know where I'm going with this. And, 
if it was just a straight up hard nosed gangster movie, it it would not be Pulp Fiction. It would be uh, a a myriad of other movies we've all seen before. Yeah, and, and speaking about like them getting hosed down, I think before we see them getting hosed down, we see them walk into Mar- Marcellus's bar mm-hmm. dressed in the clothes right, that they exactly. put on later, and so you have no context as to. Why are these two gangsters exactly dressed up in t-shirts and shorts? The How did they, they get there? How did and they that's get... the question. How did they get there? And then you know, and I think that's a trust. Like the filmmaker knows. I'll tell you. I'll tell you how we get there because it's fun. Let me tell you the story. Right. Uh, you know, and that's where starting at the end is always. I, I like to start stuff at the end. I like movies that start at the ending scene and then kind of cut out. You're like, okay, again, it's 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 the filmmaker going, hey, check this out. Check out where we're going. It's going to be awesome. But really, it's how we get there is going to be the real fun part. Right, right. Tarantino is like a comedian on stage. He's telling us jokes, stories that make us laugh. But like the best comedians, he's also telling us stories that make us think. He may indeed be borrowing from other quote-unquote comedians, or in this case, filmmakers. But he makes the jokes his own. How? By changing them just enough. Which leads us to chapter 7. It's the little differences. As I alluded to at the beginning of this episode, Tarantino's characters and their actions and dialogue are actually communicating to us what Tarantino is doing as a filmmaker. Allow me to go meta on you again as I play this short clip from Pulp Fiction, wherein John Travolta's Vincent Vega is telling Sam Jackson's Jules about his Europe trip. But you know what the funniest thing about Europe is? What? It's the little differences. I mean, they got the same shit over there that they got here, but it's just just there. It's a little different. Example. Tarantino does borrow, maybe even steal, but it's those little differences that make it his own. So going back to the Tarantino thing, like in that every in that everything is a remix. He's a blend. He's blending. So what makes Tarantino's style his style? If like shot for shot, you can see it's movie after movie after movie that because. Put it in, because he put it inside of a movie that's a bigger story and a different story than shot. So that scene might be shot for shot, right? But he might be going, okay, so this is awesome, this is awesome. And then it's just like adding a song, and it's like it might be no for no. So, so you're saying what makes his style is how he what he how he remixes, it. and I think that's the story. I think that's really what it all comes down to. Is story changes everything. You could have shot for shot. Music, there's a lot of music videos. They are shot for shot for shot for shot. But the, the, you put a country artist and you put a uh, Skrillex, maybe change the cuts a little bit. Right. It's completely different. And but it's the same. But it's the story that's been created. The, the context of the context. those different... The context of the different scenes put next to each other, it's like montage theory. It makes a totally different thing. Absolutely. That last person you heard was Mac Dickstein. I thought the comments that the boys at Thunderdome made were all good. But as Zach Lepofsky reminds us, Tarantino is not just imitating and remixing. He's doing it at a whole nother level. If someone feels like they don't have a style and they go out and try and artificially create one, it's going to be forced, which is kind of, I think, the people that try and imitate Tarantino fail. The reason Tarantino does so well is because he's not only is he imitating from the stuff that he loves, but he's putting it together at an A plus level of craft. Um, and he's, he is introducing a lot of new ideas. At the same time, he's borrowing on a huge amount of stuff that most people have forgotten about, but he's doing it in a way that no one else has. Like, you know, the fact that the ending, the way I won't spoil it, but the way the Inglorious Bastards ends is totally, like, no one could see that coming. <laughs> it's yeah. so bri- and it's so brilliant, even though he borrows from a lot of kind of um, inspirations for the setup of that film, what he does with it is completely his own and based on kind of all the different things that he likes. So I think everyone has to kind of just be true to their inspirations and then connect them in a way that no one else has ever connected. Chapter 8. Fearless in the Face of Flack. You know, content is the result of you, you as an audience member, actively engaging with that piece on its own and not with the distraction of of, uh, the you know, the surrounding commentary. That was the voice of Mike Gaston, director, CEO, and co-founder of the social experiment filmmaking sensation Cut.com, whose YouTube channel, Watch Cut, has garnered over a quarter billion views in just over 18 months. That's a quarter billion with a B. 
So Mike knows a thing or three when it comes to producing and creating content. When I spoke with him for the show, he offered some valuable insight with respect to how audiences respond to a content creator's work. So in Tarantino makes it difficult, you know, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll watch a piece of his and I'll be really, I haven't seen Hateful Eight yet, uh, but I have heard that it's just, you know, it's almost, it's oppressive how, how like, it's just, it comes at you constantly. The, you know, the, the use of the N-word mm-hmm. that in a way that, that's beyond what he's done in the past even. Um, and I haven't seen it yet, but, uh, you know, you'll read some of the, some of the interviews and you go, oh gosh, this person is so glib about, about this, um, you know, about the reality of using this word that you, you begin to invest the things he says with like your own interpretation of, uh, of like the meaning behind it. Right. But you can't actually know. (laughs) So it's. It, it, it's, it's just it's complicated and I think that's what's interesting about his work is that it leaves you in a place where you're um, it feels like you're invited into a discussion the conversations you have with your friends about you know how important is the intent of the artist versus just taking the art for what it is and then you know when you see interviews with filmmakers like Tarantino who are commenting on their intent and whatnot and the importance of that um, wh- where do you fall on that um I mostly don't care what what an artist thinks about mm-hmm. their about their own work. Um, you know, like I even when I so when I make my own, um, when, when you know when I write my own stories or I make my own uh, videos, I know the intention behind everything that I'm doing, um, but that isn't always uh, that doesn't always come across to the to the audience who is engaging with it. Um, and I feel like, you know, what I'm always struggling with is trying to become clear about the intention behind the things that I'm doing in my, in the work that that I'm making, but that's not necessarily my job as, as an artist. Right. And then with, um, the audience, the way they engage with it gives it like, if that actually gives it life, you know, like suddenly their, their opinions or their reactions to this, to, to this work. Um, has a really big impact um, if they like it or hate it, and the reasons why can um, you know it's, it's they become they, in some ways they adopt the role of the artist. You know, they reinterpret my work back to me, and that's it's more interesting to me to to hear what other people have to say about it. Um, and I don't really, I don't feel constantly compelled to defend, mm-hmm. uh, you know, or like to to make clear unless people honestly ask. If people really want to know, I'm happy to have conversations. Right. But, there, but there's a reason why I leave all kinds of comments on YouTube or on Facebook just living there. You know, like, you know, sure. go ahead. Have, you know, this is, this is part of, this is part of the, the game, right? I make something and then, you, then you, have a, you have a reaction to it. Mike's comments provide the eighth and final framework for which to assess Tarantino as an auteur. The audience's reaction to the work he puts out and Tarantino's reaction to that reaction. Clark Wolf gives us perhaps the shortest, straightest answer. When you watch a Quentin Tarantino movie, he does not care whether or not you, you know, he doesn't care if you like it or not. Because like you were saying, if you're here to see my movie, you're mine. You're on board. So, you know, I I admire that about him in a lot of ways. There's a real bluntness to his style um, that... I like because he's not one to compromise. That's Jeff Berry, director of the soon-to-be-released feature film Occupy Texas. I do think that we're in a time where, you know, what's the thing going around right now? The uh, the participation trophy, right? Is that <laughs> right? Right. You know, he's he's never gonna he's never gonna make the film that's the participation trophy. You know, he he's his foot's on the pedal the whole time, and some people like that, some people don't. And that's okay. You know, he's not someone who's willing to compromise his vision in an effort not to offend somebody. And I think that there's something admirable about that. Whether you like what he's doing or not, I applaud the pursuit without compromise. My dignity, yeah. I was sitting outside in this kind of 
exuberant loud man comes out and goes, Oh my god, did you see those tip jars? Like, thank god more people put the tips in Kubrick. I mean, Tarantino, please, what a hack. And with that comment from Zach, we come full circle to where we started. And with the story we've told and the interviews we've heard since we started this episode, like a Tarantino film, we now have a new perspective with which to listen and judge that opening dialogue. And they're like, you know, like, and I was just like, I mean, I think they're both amazing. <laughs> like, like, I was yeah. like, like, Tarantino was what I just watched Glorious Bastards again. Like, I think it's almost a flawless film and equally love Kubrick, but for completely different ways. Like, I don't see why um, you have to be so kind of precious about it that way. I, I would put them on equal, equal level in my mind anyway. Ignorance. And as an artist, I, I do have to say, you know, um, I think that that is very important. Here's Hurlbut Visual CEO again, Lydia Hurlbut. How many times can you really lose your voice because you're you're listening to what everybody's saying and you're morphing and shifting and you're not staying true to the story that you want to tell? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it, it's a fine line of really having clarity in this is the story that I'm going to tell. And yes, your opinion matters, but this is the story that I'm going to tell. And there's a certain fearlessness in that. And the fact that you're going to take a lot of flack um, from a lot of people. Yeah. So I, I respect him as an artist for that. So ends Volume 1 of our Tarantino discussion, Tarantino the Auteur. In the next installment of A Filmmaker's Journey, we'll talk about Tarantino the Provocateur. As a female, um, it's very visceral and difficult to watch the position that women are in. Um, And like the killing in that scene, I mean, all of that, it just, it bothered me. I don't see him as racist either. I think he might be irresponsible. And I think if you hear the N-word like a thousand times, then the the one thousand and one time, it's not going to make you cringe anymore. But maybe we should cringe at that word. No white director works with African-American actors the way Tarantino does. Nobody else gives African-American actors that chance outside of a movie about slavery. Stay tuned for that in a couple of weeks. Speaking of provocative topics, next week on the next Short End segment, we revisit our women in film discussion. This time, I'm called to task for a comment I made on the show. And the person who challenges what I said, my good friend and show regular, Yolanda Cochran. I've now listened to both of your best of, and um, something in it sparked me to want to respond. And oh, I, yeah. I decided that I was going to leave you a voicemail to do so so <laughs> i'll leave you a voicemail and let you know my opinion tell me now yeah what's up i want to know well first of all uh, first i want to gather my thoughts yeah, you can't say something like that i, know. <laughs> I, <don't know>. <laughs> I have this well, big thing i want to tell you because <laughs> you changed right, your uh, life i think uh first of all you need to cut jd from the show he brings <laughs> the show down you don't need comic relief in the show <laughs> it harkens back to your women in film yes and you know um that whole topic yes and you did a summary you were coming off of a discussion with unfortunately i'm forgetting the woman's name Uh but it was a three a three name name (laughs) she said you know what i'm glad you did ask the question and then you sum it up and you talk about you know women and quote unquote what what women should or could be doing Mm -hmm. and your last point was... <laughs> they should think and act like men. Think and behave like men. Right. Church. <laughs> <laughs> so, I... You have a comment about that. I took issue and reject that comment. Although huh? I understand, I think it needs to be rephrased. That's the world we live in. I mean... The men who are getting ahead. I understand that, but that, does that mean that the world we live in is right and that we shouldn't be striving to make changes about that? What started out as a last-minute comment of what was already an hour-and-a-half-long conversation turned into fodder for another full short-ends episode of the show. 
Be sure and tune in next week to hear that episode. It's a doozy! <laughs> Remember, we have a bonus clip after the credits, which begin now. Radio Film School is a production of Daredreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by me. Chris Huslich is our co-producer. Everything goes my way when I want it to. Except for the obvious movie clips, music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to artists and tracks are in the show notes. Music was also curated from our sponsor, Song Freedom. You know how crucial music is to any production? Tarantino proves it. When you need a wide selection of music to choose from, from any bands to mainstream, look no further than Song Freedom. Go to songfreedom.com radio to unlock a standard gold level license worth $30. At songfreedom.com slash radio. We're also supported by Muse Storytelling by Still Motion. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned their reference to the It's Not Me, It's You syndrome. It's something that often happens after interviews are less than satisfactory. But here's the thing. If we want to get something different, something deeper out of our interviewees, then we need to be ready to do something different. And that's where their new class, How to Conduct Remarkable Interviews, comes in. It provides actionable techniques guaranteed to change the way you work with non-actors and the performance that results. As promised, they have a remarkable offer to get you into the course. The first 50 people to use the code INTERVIEW will save $48 and get in on the course for just $99. Just head on over to learnstory.org. If you've taken the time to leave us a comment and review in iTunes, thank you, thank you, thank you. It means the world to us. If you haven't but been meaning to, it would mean a lot if you take a couple of minutes to rate the show on iTunes or any other podcatcher that you use. Those comments are the lifeblood of any podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at FM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. Join the conversation online at facebook.com slash radiofilmschool. That's all for now. Until next time, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Sayonara. You're not too sure about the digital era, are you, in terms of, as opposed to the old day of going to the cinema and yeah, no, the I, widescreen and so on. The digital era... At least it, it does nothing for me. I mean, I actually think I'm getting gypped when I go to a movie and I realize it's either been shot on digital or being projected in digital. Um, I mean, some people feel differently about this, but I, I think it's the death keel. I think it's the death rattle. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I do. And, and I also have a, even another whole aspect about it. You know, I've always believed in the magic of movies. Yeah. And to me, the magic of movies is connected to 35mm. Because everyone thinks, you can't help but think, that when you're filming something on film, that you're recording movement. You're not recording movement. You are just taking a series of still pictures. There's no movement in movies at all. They are still pictures. But when shown at 24 frames a second, through a light bulb, it creates the illusion of movement. So thus, as opposed to a recording device, when you're watching a movie, a film print, you are watching an illusion. And to me, that illusion is connected to the magic of movies. I always end each episode with a sign-off, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with. And you would think that someone as passionate about good storytelling as Tarantino would have a similar sentiment. That's why his comments about film versus digital and how he'd give up filmmaking if film died has always baffled me. I had a conversation about this topic with Isaac, and I loved his take on the topic, 
It's something a little different than what you've probably normally heard. Like just how he talks about film, where it's like, like he's like, you know, I'm gonna quit film because of digital film. That's that's that's, that's my pet peeve. To me, it's yeah. like really like, well, be the change you want to see in the world. Like start shooting film and prove to us that it's better. Because right now, the 70 millimeter thing didn't seem all that great to me. Maybe it was the projector, because I saw Interstellar in 70 millimeter, and it was a difference. Um, I didn't see a big difference on this one. You know, like, I don't know. The, what you're doing is you're slapping your, in the face all the people that have shoot digitally um, because they can't afford it. Because what I love to do is see young kids shooting film or shooting video or whatever, making film in the general sense, not in the film tangible, you know, you could touch the film sense, but right, like, right. I love seeing young guys, young girls going out there and taking a video camera, whatever camera they have and telling the stories. I love that. Um, I love seeing that. I love that the playing field is getting leveled every year that, Poor kids can do that and tell their story and actually bring a different thing to the table. And the fact that filmmaking or storytelling view through a camera isn't being limited to rich white kids. I love that. I love that it's not getting this. It's, it's breaking all these barriers where it's like, I want to hear these stories. I want to hear these stories of like, I haven't seen Snow in the Bluff, but I kind of love that that was, I want to see it. But like, I love that they were able to do that because they weren't limited to just shooting on film. Right. Uh, I love, I love that. And I think Tarantino is really arrogant for even thinking like, well, this, this is the only way to do that. It's like, no storytelling is about taking a camera or filmmaking to me is taking a camera and telling a story, taking a camera, not this, this camera or this type of camera. It's like a camera. So with that, my fellow filmmaking friends go tell a good story.